Section 14 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 16. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Faith Ann Gibson. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 16. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 14. Allegoric Vision by Samuel T. Coleridge. A feeling of sadness, a peculiar melancholy, is wont to take possession of me alike in spring and in autumn. But in spring it is the melancholy of hope, in autumn it is the melancholy of resignation. As I was journeying on foot through the Apennine, I fell in with a pilgrim, in whom the spring and the autumn and the melancholy of both seemed to have combined. In his discourse there were the freshness and the colors of April. But as I gazed on his whole form and figure, I bethought me of the not unlovely decays, both of age and of the late season, in the stately elm, after the clusters have been plucked from its entwining vines, and the vines are as bands of dried withies around its trunk and branches. Even so there was a memory on his smooth and ample forehead, which blended with the dedication of his steady eyes that still looked, I know not whether upward or far onward, or rather to the line of meeting where the sky rests on the distance. But how may I express the dimness of abstraction which lay on the lustre of the pilgrim's eyes, like the flitting tarnish from the breath of a sigh on a silver mirror, and which accorded with their slow and reluctant movement whenever he turned them to any object on the right hand or on the left? It seemed, methought, as if there lay upon the brightness a shadowy presence of disappointments, now unfelt but never forgotten it was at once the melancholy of hope and of resignation we had not long been fellow-travellers ere a sudden tempest of wind and rain forced us to seek protection in the vaulted doorway of a lone chapelry and we sat face to face each on the stone bench alongside the low weather-stained wall and as close as possible to the massy door after a pause of silence even thus said he like two strangers that have fled to the same shelter from the same storm, not seldom do despair and hope meet for the first time in the porch of death. All extremes meet, I answered, but yours was a strange and visionary thought. The better, then, doth it be seen both the place and me, he replied. From a visionary wilt thou hear a vision? Mark that vivid flash through this torrent of rain, fire and water. Even here thy adage holds true, and its truth is the moral of my vision. I entreated him to proceed. Sloping his face toward the arch and yet averting his eye from it, he seemed to seek and prepare his words, till listening to the wind that echoed within the hollow edifice and to the rain without, which stole on his thoughts with its twofold sound, the clash hard by and the murmur all round, he gradually sank away, alike from me and from his own purpose, and amid the gloom of the storm, in the duskiness of that place, he sat like an emblem on a rich man's sepulchre, or like a mourner on the sodded grave of an only one an aged mourner, who is watching the waned moon and sorroweth not. Starting at length from his brief trance of abstraction, with courtesy and an atoning smile, he renewed his discourse, and commenced his parable. Quoting one of those short furlongs from the service of the body, which the soul may sometimes obtain even in this its militant state, I found myself in a vast plain, which I immediately knew to be the valley of life. It possessed an astonishing diversity of soils, and here was a sunny spot, and there a dark one, forming just such a mixture of sunshine and shade 
as we have observed on the mountainside on an April day, when the thin broken clouds are scattered over heaven. Almost in the very entrance of the valley stood a large and gloomy pile, into which I seemed constrained to enter. Every part of the building was crowded with tawdry ornaments and fantastic deformity. On every window was portrayed, in glaring and inelegant colours, some horrible tale or preternatural incident, so that not a ray of light could enter untinged by the medium through which it passed. The body of the building was full of people, some of them dancing in and out, in unintelligible figures, with strange ceremonies and antic merriment, while others seemed convulsed with horror or pining in mad melancholy. Intermingled with these I observed a number of men, clothed in ceremonial robes, who appeared, now to marshal the various groups and to direct their movements, and now with menacing countenances to drag some reluctant victim to a vast idol, framed of iron bars, intercrossed, which formed at the same time an immense cage and the shape of a human colossus. I stood for a while, lost in wonder what these things might mean, when, lo, one of the directors came up to me, and with a stern and reproachful look bade me uncover my head, for the place into which I had entered was the temple of the only true religion, in the holier recess of which the great goddess personally resided. Himself, too, he made me reverence as the consecrated minister of her rites. Awestruck by the name of religion, I bowed before the priest, and humbly and earnestly entreated him to conduct me into her presence. He assented. Offerings he took from me, with mystic sprinklings of water and with salt he purified, and with strange sufflations he exorcised me, and then led me through many dark and winding alleys, the dew-damps of which chilled my flesh, and the hollow echoes under my feet mingled me thought with moanings affrighted me. At length we entered a large hall, without window or spiracle or lamp. The asylum and dormitory it seemed of perennial light, only that the walls were brought to the eye by a number of self-luminous inscriptions in letters of a pale sepulchral light that held strange neutrality with the darkness on the verge of which it kept its rayless vigil. I could read them, methought, but though each one of the words taken separately I seemed to understand, Yet when I took them in sentences, they were riddles and incomprehensible. As I stood meditating on these hard sayings, my guide thus addressed me. Read and believe, these are mysteries. At the extremity of the vast hall, the goddess was placed. Her features, blended with darkness, rose out to my view, terrible yet vacant. I prostrated myself before her, and then retired with my guide, soul-withered and wandering and dissatisfied. As I re-entered the body of the temple, I heard a deep buzz as of discontent. A few whose eyes were bright, and either piercing or steady, and whose ample foreheads, with the weighty bar, ridge-like above the eyebrows, bespoke observation followed by meditative thought, and a much larger number who were engaged by the severity and insolence of the priests in exacting their offerings, had collected in one tumultuous group, and with a confused outcry of, "'This is the temple of superstition!' after much contumely and turmoil, and cruel maltreatment on all sides, rushed out of the pile, and I, methought, joined them. We speeded from the temple with hasty steps, and had now nearly gone round half the valley, when we were addressed by a woman, tall beyond the stature of mortals, and with something more than human in her countenance and mien, which yet could by mortals be only felt, not conveyed by words, or intelligibly distinguished. Deep reflection, animated by ardent feeling, was displayed in them, and hope, without its uncertainty, and a something more than all these, which I understood not, but which yet seemed to blend all these into a divine unity of expression. 
Her garments were white and mantly, and of the simplest texture. We inquired her name. My name, she replied, is religion. The more numerous part of our company, affrighted by the very sound and sore from recent impostures or sorceries, hurried onward and examined no farther. A few of us, struck by the manifest opposition of her form and manners to those of the living idol whom we had so recently abjured, agreed to follow her, though with cautious circumspection. She led us to an eminence in the midst of the valley, from the top of which we could command the whole plain, and observe the relation of the different parts of each of the other, and of each to the whole, and of all to each. She then gave us an optic glass which assisted without contradicting our natural vision, and enabled us to see far beyond the limits of the valley of life, though our eye even thus assisted, permitted us only to behold a light and a glory, but we could not descry, save only that it was, and that it was most glorious. And now, with the rapid transition of a dream, I had overtaken and rejoined the more numerous party, who had abruptly left us indignant at the name of religion. They journeyed on, goading each other with remembrances of past oppressions, and never looking back, till, in the eagerness to recede from the temple of superstition, they had rounded the whole circle of the valley. And, lo, there faced us the mouth of a vast cavern, at the base of a lofty and almost perpendicular rock the interior side of which, unknown to them and unsuspected, formed the extreme and backward wall of the temple. An impatient crowd we entered the vast and dusky cave, which was the only perforation of the precipice. At the mouth of the cave sat two figures, the first, by her dress and gesture, I knew to be sensuality. The second form, from the fierceness of his demeanor and the brutal scornfulness of his looks, declared himself to be the monster blasphemy. He uttered big words, yet ever and anon I observed that he turned pale at his own courage. We entered. Some remained in the opening of the cave, with the one or the other of its guardians. The rest, and I among them, pressed on, till we reached an ample chamber that seemed the centre of the rock. The climate of the place was unnaturally cold. In the furthest distance of the chamber sat an old dim-eyed man, poring with a microscope over the torso of a statue which had neither basis nor feet nor head but on its breast was carved nature. To this he continually applied his glass, and seemed enraptured with the various inequalities which it rendered visible on the seemingly polished surface of the marble. Yet evermore was this delight and triumph followed by expressions of hatred and vehement railings against a being who yet, he assured us, had no existence. This mystery suddenly recalled to me what I had read in the holiest recess of the temple of superstition. The old man spoke in divers tongues, and continued to utter other and most strange mysteries. Among the rest, he talked much and vehemently concerning an infinite series of causes and effects, which he explained to be a string of blind men, the last of whom caught hold of the skirt of the one before him, he of the next, and so on, till they were all out of sight, and that all walked infallibly straight, without making one false step, though all were alike blind. Methought I borrowed courage from surprise, and asked him, Who then is at the head to guide them? He looked at me with ineffable contempt, not unmixed with an angry suspicion, and then replied, No one! The string of blind men went on for ever, without any beginning, for although one blind man could not move without stumbling, yet infinite blindness supplied the want of sight. I burst into laughter, which instantly turned to terror for as he started forward in rage, I caught a glance of him from behind, and I beheld a monster biform and janus-headed. In the hinder face 
and shape of which I instantly recognized the dread countenance of superstition, and in the terror I awoke. End of section 14